At that time, I couldn't even get into Asian American theater festivals, Asian American women's performance festivals, because I wasn't doing the Amy Tan thing. I'm Asian American, I'm dating a white boyfriend because I hate myself. And then at the end of my journey, I go to China, stand on my grandmother's grave. She comes to me in a dream in the form of a cricket. And then I realize I am more Chinese than I thought. Welcome to episode eight of the Unspeakable Podcast, a place where we talk like no one's listening except for the fact that I really hope you are listening. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is writer and performer Sandra Singh Lowe. Sandra is the author of six books, most recently The Mad Woman and the Roomba, My Year of Domestic Mayhem. She has contributed to lots of magazines over the years, including The Atlantic, and has written and performed numerous solo theater shows. Her first love, however, is performance art, And in the 1980s, she became an established figure in the Los Angeles alternative art scene. As the avant-garde scene dissipated and the creative economy forced artists to think more like entrepreneurs, Sandra remained true to her core artistic vision, even if it meant living the kind of scrappy, quirky life she writes about in her books and essays. In this conversation, she talks with me about the realities of making art in the current economic and cultural landscape and how to avoid selling out even when sometimes you would love nothing more than to sell out. Not to mention that selling out means something different today than it used to. Please note that an extended version of this interview is available for subscribers on the Patreon page. In the meantime, here's my conversation with Sandra Singh Lowe. Sandra Singh Lowe, thank you for being on The Unspeakable. I'm so happy to be with you. Congratulations on the book, The Mad Woman and the Roomba. I don't actually have a Roomba, so this is, uh, I feel like now I can just read about them. I don't have to get one. The Roomba is always very good in the first month or two, but then there's enormous number of filters and things to change. So it's one of those, it's one of those things that looks better than it is. Well, a metaphor, let's say. Yes. So this is your sixth book, I believe? I believe so. And is this, would you say this is the follow-up to the brilliant, by the way, Mad Woman in the Volvo, or do you see these as separate entities? Because that was about middle age, transitions of various sorts, and this is similar, but different. So how are they disparate? So in a way, the Mad Woman in the Roomba is a sequel to the Mad Woman in the Volvo in that the title Mad Woman is the same, although they're kind of two different books. And um, the Mad Woman and the Volvo was based on kind of my year of raging hormones, as we called it, because you can't use menopause in a subtitle. Apparently, it's a it's a marketing killer. And it was about, about kind of blowing up one's life in the mid-40s, particularly around 46, which was kind of cataclysmic, where I was transitioning from being a sort of PTA mom that was in my earlier book, Mother on Fire. So there's a lot of exploding women, burning women, mad women of sort of volunteering, of taking over the whole school system, of bonding with your sisters and, you know, throwing protests in front of the Sacramento Capitol about school funding. And in doing all that activism, I learned how to drive an RV. And once you learn how to drive an RV, the world is your oyster. And we said, now we're going to go to Burning Man (laughs) to see the art. And And we were all happily married PTA mothers, we thought. And then once they're on the open playa of the desert, it's kind of like a truth serum. Everybody starts saying, oh my God, I 
I'm not having sex with my husband anymore. Even though we have gifted children, that puts our whole household in the gifted <laughs> children's schedule. So we don't have sex. It's kind of like where people started admitting the lie to the li- lives they were living. Right. Were they on psychedelics when they were admitting these things? Or this was just so- sober admissions? So very old. We were kind of like, I think that Burning Man was hit the moment the moment we set foot on the playa, it became not hip because we were the people with the Clinique SPF 50 moisturizer mm. and the Trader Joe's pirate booty. And the somebody brought a bag of mushrooms, but they were really old. And so <laughs> or they this, were from Trader Joe's. I think it's more of the, <laughs> right. yes, the, the heat exhaustion and the dehydration. It was kind of more of that extreme scenario. So I, my best friend, male friend, was my theater producer, was along with us, also happily married with child. And we just blew up our marriages and started this crazy affair, which was kind of, it was kind of like a a midlife crisis. It was also onset of perimenopause. And so the mad woman in the room is like dealing with um, really the emotional ups and downs of that upheaval in that particular life. And and the idea of the mad woman driving the Volvo is what we would call, you know, the soccer moms, the Volvo moms of, you know, racing down the freeway, temperature is down to minus 10, dog is in the front seat, kids are in the back, ailing grandpa is in the way back. Because, you know, kind of that, that midlife between 45 and 55 is an age where a lot of women, I mean, it's interesting, it's America's largest demographic, about 45 to 60, it's not like 44 million women. And they're very much sandwiched in, the, in this generation of taking care of kids who are to, you know, Irma Bombeck said, yeah, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, menopause today, that you're going to go to menopause the same week that your 16-year-old is going to learn to drive. So the children aren't really the right age. The parents live forever. My dad lived to 97. Yeah. You're trying to lean in at work while leaning back into your relationship and have an Oprah date night. And women are going quite nuts trying to balance this at a time when their hormones are also betraying them or changing in any case. Um, and, and the one thing about menopause is interesting is that in menopause, parts of the brain that have repressed rage and repressed memory kind of lift and light up. So now you remember every slight that ever happened to you and you're really angry about it. Is that right? Repressed memory is connected with <laughs> menopause? I never yeah. heard that. Repressed memory and also anger. Repressed anger. Well, that's obvious if you're on social media, especially Facebook. Yes. <laughs> but the repressed but, memory, I did not know. I don't there's yeah. I don't want to remember. I, I would like to keep it repressed. So can you take like hormone therapy or something to keep, ta- tamp those memories down? Yeah. And they say it's evolution may have done that because when young mothers are in tribes, they don't want to remember the slights that the other tribe did against their tribe. They don't want these women to go out and kill the other tribe and re- so that they forget all the slights that have occurred so they can tend the young children and be calm and happy. So needless to say, that time clock is gone now. So anyway, so that was the Mad Woman of the Volvo book. The Mad Woman of the Roomba is more like a year in midlife of middle like grasping with middle age of kind of and i used to say you know being 55 i'm now 58 felt like being living in an 85 year old's body and having the you know financial stability of a 25 year old (laughs) (laughs) so that i think that my generation you're younger than me you're a gen xer i was born in 62 so i'm kind of like not 
young enough to be a Gen Xer, but really more of that feeling than the baby boomers. Yeah, you seem like a Gen Xer. We'll, we'll claim you. We'll let you in. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> but be, being in this in-between generation of we're supposed to have this financial responsibility, but we're still feeling like we're struggling all the time. You know, so when I think of quote unquote retirement and picture those baby boomers in silver hair loping towards the Pacific Ocean with their surfboards towards their Charles Schwab accounts, it's like it feels completely foreign. So this book takes place over the course of one year. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, it would be great for people to read it in any case. But if they've read The Mad Woman and the Volva, they sort of know some of this cast of characters. So in The Mad Woman and the Roomba, you are now living with the person with whom you had the affair at right. Burning Man. You have a different sort of domestic setup. And one of the things that struck me in, in reading this and having read your other work and knowing your career as an artist, like you don't have all the trappings of like an artist's life so much. Like you live, like there's a sort of strange, you are, a, no, you are, and I mean this in all sincerity and I want to talk about this in depth, but you are a real artist and your mind is sort of structured that way and you really think in terms of your own creativity, but you live in a, you know, pretty sort of almost like all American kind of setting. Like, can you sort of describe your your household and and your, your neighborhood and all of that? Yeah, and I think, I mean, to begin with, I think that what we might have in our minds in a similar generation, and thank you for claiming me, I think that I went to college to backtrack for a moment in 79 to 83. So growing up in the 80s, our image of a female artist was definitely like Laurie Anderson. Yes. In those roller skates, the violin. Karen Finley. Oh, Karen Finley, right. <laughs> That's a memory I've repressed, actually, seeing Karen Finley perform. <laughs> it's coming back now. So you were supposed to see, and I think Laurie Anderson was definitely this idea. And then if you partnered with someone, it would be much later in your 40s and 50s. It might be Lou Reed and you would live in. <laughs> it could only be Lou East Reed or side. Sam Shepard. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> Those are the right. two options. And you wouldn't, you know, maybe, you know, in your 70s, you adopt a child from another country or something, <laughs> but it wasn't really in the picture to do that sort of thing. Although, you know, she was kind of rising in popularity at the same time as Martha Stewart. So there was kind of a bipolarity of who we were supposed to be. Right. You could pick your track, but I know which track we were more interested in. Yes. We were totally more interested in that. And then what I found is, I mean, and I did performance art at like 25, 26. I did. So, you know, I, this is the longer answer to your question, but it's kind of like, I was very interested in the living theater and Dadaists. And so I wanted to do performance art on the street. So I did this yeah. piano concert on the Harbor Freeway when I was 25 years about old. That. Yep. Yep. Wasn't that from like a parking structure or something? Yes, the parking structure abutting the freeway was in People Magazine and then Johnny Carson's monologue, although it was somewhat behind these racing pigs from Iowa that were, they would put Oreos in a track around them to have them race around. So I was kind of like in the Wall Street Journal orphan section. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let, I want people to, if they're not familiar with this, so describe this. Okay. What kind of parking structure was it? It was on like the 110 freeway. Explain. So my dream, okay, so I had written this play, this semi-produced play about a stand-up comic that is so bad that he cannot find an audience. So he goes onto the freeway off-ramps of... Los Angeles, where, you know, people sell oranges, et cetera, et cetera, to do his act to commuters who are strapped into their cars 
in rush hour. So they're a captive audience. And at the end, obviously, you've never seen this play because it really never was really produced. California falls into the ocean because I had no ending. <laughs> What's better than the earthquake ending? That's always the, the if, if it when in doubt, just have there be an earthquake at the end. <laughs> so it was a really bad play that I decided to direct myself at USC because nobody else would do it. And I had these cutouts of LA of cardboard that I cut the strings to represent them falling into the ocean. And it was really such a bad production. And I had commuters in the audience that would get up at the end and run around trying the doors of the theater that were locked as a metaphor for people trying to get away from this guy's act. And unfortunately, I had a lot of students that banged the audience in the head with their little surfboards on the way out. And it was a total disaster. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm an avant-garde then. And so I did it uh, for the LA Festival. I think it was in 1984. And so I wanted to be on the freeway off-ramp, but Caltrans wouldn't let me do it. So I got, and there was something called the Thomas Cadillac building at that time. They had a Cadillac there. I wanted to do it there. They wouldn't let me do it there. So I got on a, a parking structure that abutted the freeway. Okay. But to be heard, I had to get one third of the Marshall stacks they used at YouTube concerts to brought to amplify the sound of the piano music that would go over the freeway. And then I got a 10 foot long white Steinway piano that would be later used when the Pope came and visited, I think in the Rose Bowl. Really? And so I had a giant white piano and, and this huge amplification. We did it, I think it was Labor Day or Memorial Day. It was some kind of Friday afternoon rush hour. And, and so the metaphor of being an artist that, um, you know, you are there and people see you, but they may never, you know, I think it was called accidental demographics that whoever is there is my audience. I sort of had this idea and there's some performance art going on in Los Angeles that you're sitting on the freeway, you look up and you see this image of a woman all in white at a white Steinway playing piano, like in a Gershwin musical, and you look away and the freeway has moved on and you don't see it again. Mm -hmm. And I was like going, well, if you saw something surprising like that, wouldn't that always make you surprised to see something in life and it would change how we would think? But not knowing that if you do anything in Los Angeles that has a palm tree behind it, you'll be labeled not as an important performance artist like Laurie Anderson, but as a wacky California, like starlet trying to get attention. Really? Like Angeline's. That's so the LA thing was like a stigma. You think that if you had transported that performance to something in New York city, it would have been received differently. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was <laughs> right. Cause everything we did in California was like kind of wacky. And it was like to get into Hollywood. And I totally thought that. I was like totally going by the second time I did something where I had an assistant throw $1,000 in cash over me as I played in $1 bills. Because after that first piece, I got so much publicity. People said, you should hire a publicist at $1,000 a month <laughs> to keep the publicity going. I go, right. for what? I'm not, I'm not um, selling anything. Why don't I just take that $1,000 and throw it over myself and get more publicity? So it be because then it became an argument about publicity and even about the yeah, morality right. of if an art artist pays people to come and see them, then the artist will get trampled by the audience. And in that fact, I did at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. That's exactly what happened. It was in $1 bills. It, they threw it over me at the peak of this piece, and I was kind of trampled. And the leader of the stampede was my father. Wait, 
this was set up or this is just happened spontaneously? Yeah, no, it was set up. It was part of the installation. It was, yeah, yes. it was okay. kind of like, so it's kind of like, this is the piece. It went out on morning shock jock radio. Like this lady's going to throw a thousand dollars and come and like, get it. Right. So this crowd formed in the parking oh. lot and they all went at the moment, the climatic moment, they all rushed in and grabbed the $1 bills as they fell over me as I played. And my my Chinese, my skin flint Chinese father was the first, and he went to the news camera and said, after all that money I put into her Caltech education, these $4 are the first I've gotten back. <laughs> so, usually <laughs> stole. Yeah, and your father is a was a famous or at least infamous Chinese yes. physicist. Skin flint. So, so right. I think this is a very long answer to your question, and thank God there's editing because so I think that I grew up, and then I, at 26, I met my husband, who was a guitarist and a studio musician, and he had never done anything but play the guitar to make a living. I think he washed dishes for two weeks sometime in South Dakota. So he just was always worked as a guitarist, and I kind of taught, and I tried to write, and he said, uh, you know, it, it, and the idea was, I think this sort of Ken Kesey idea of, like, if you really want to write, then give yourself no other possibility of escape and really learn how to do it. So that was the back in the days of pitching, of sending out stuff in manila envelopes right. and SASEs and all that kind of stuff. So I think for me, being an artist, I lived with real artists and we lived in Canoga Park, uh, which is the, the unhippest place in the world. So it was like living in Los Angeles, being an artist in Los Angeles, we're trying to do the Frank Zappa model of, and right. I live in Lancaster. I'm right. like, we couldn't be hip. We weren't in New York. We weren't even in the hip parts of LA. There was no Silver Lake or Echo Park or whatever. So I think the pretensions of whatever that would look like early on were really gone for me in my 20s. I mean, there wasn't the cool books and the cool, you know, lamps or whatever. We just were never <laughs> hip. So now I'm really not hip. I'm 58. I, I do live in a in a large craftsman home that I got short sailed because of managing some real estate in the valley in unhip Van Nuys, you know, due to the Northridge earthquake. So it's kind of like as working artists, we just never had a big windfall. We were just always thrifty. So so there's no pretensions here, and I'm so unhip that I have a Costco massage chair in the middle of my living room because I got it for thousand dollars off with a Roomba. And I have my partner called Charlie in the book. And I think what was interesting in this version of the book is that the men become more characters than they were before. Mm -hmm. It's not just the women melting down, but the men have their own quirky responses to what the women have become. And that's sort of part of the story too. And it seems like the in some cases, the men are being financially supported by the women. <laughs> there's definitely a financial, I feel like there's a sort of subplot that has to do with alpha beta roles and sort of who's wearing the pants or at least who's making a semblance of a living. But I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've seen that more. I mean, it's interesting. Okay, so kind of like the divorce rate. Okay, so for women in their 40s having their midlife crises, the divorce rate has gone up in these certain sectors because women are more financially independent. They So they can get divorced. Yes, it used to be they just were not able to, right? Right. They can now. And then it's so the women who are, I call these the Sheryl Sandberg leaning in and at work and trying to get their work done and, you know, succeed in the writing world or whatever. There are these men that are these partner men that is, I mean, 
not only is the story about what you just said, but it's also about gentle downward mobility. Mm -hmm. So my father was from Shanghai, engineer. I'm half Asian and my kids are quarter Asian. So they're studying art at UC Santa Barbara. So they've come all the way. The, The fruit has fallen that far from the tree. My partner, Charlie, in the book came from wasps, you know, one-time money wasps, CEO of Sealy Posturepedic. Then that's the grandfather. His son, who is my partner's father, eh, doesn't want to go into the corporate business, does independent printing, really gets good at barbecuing. <laughs> and so you have my right. partner. The gentleman's arts, as you put it. The, in the gentleman's book, right? arts yes. who went to Columbia in the 70s where you could get in with a B and he faked his AP literary thing. He wrote it on a fictional piece called Apartment House Raga. Mm-hmm. So all of his cohorts, who are these men now, went into Japanese horticulture and erotic statuary and, you know, Belgian food. And they're into Sun Ra and vinyl and Afrofuturism. And, and, and these are particularly white men. It's kind of like there's a coterie of the gentleman's arts that they can really you know, mix a drink and tie a tie and barbecue. And they're able to do this because the women they are with are have their acts together in some ways or just more motivated. Like, what's the best way of putting it? I think it is because, okay, in our journey as women, you know, I remember my mother stayed home, my father went to work, you kind of wanted to do that. I think they're kind of in revolt against their quiet revolt, easy revolt against their grandfather's and the maleness and all that kind of stuff that they somehow crafted a way of being sort of affable guys that are good conversationalists and can hang out and that somehow these hard driven women kind of appreciated the guy who would pour the glass of wine and say, how are you at the end of the day or something. So mm-hmm. for some reason, these two competencies or lack of competencies have, have melded. So I think they're responding in some way. It's not really often talked about to their grandfathers and fathers lineage of doing these. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And do you think that these partnerships are working? We're sort of going off the track. I want to go back and talk about sort of the economics of creative life, but I don't think this is entirely ungermane. So like, how are these partnerships faring, like, in general? I think one of the things is it really depends. And I think that one sits and thinks about it um, rationally to say, it should look like this. You know, at this point, we're adults. Come on. How much social security do you have? We're sit, we're 60 ish. We're personally like, we gotta, we gotta grow up now. This is like, when you think about it rationally, nothing looks good on paper. Um, but you're kind of like, you know, and we're in these weird times. So I think it sort of depends on like everything else. If, if kind of the Netflix queue is kind of working and the barbecuing gets done on a certain time and you're thinking about others, it's kind of like, it's not like on a tightrope, not looking down to go, wait a minute, this should look entirely different. It's just managing life. And especially in the quarantine, it's not be with the one you love, love the one you're with. I think our standards, if we are hanging out with anybody in a pod, we have to go, now this is my, you know, survivor pod. I can't expect, nor can they expect me to be a person I'm just, we play a lot of board games now. <laughs> so back in 1984, when you were playing piano yes. in the parking structure, when you were doing all these things, like, what did you imagine your career was going to be like? Like, what was your 
fantasy version. Maybe it wasn't even a fantasy. Like, what could you realistically expect a career in the arts to look like? I'll tell you exactly what I thought at that time, and it's very humiliating. So my given name is Sandra Lowe. My middle name is Singh. So the first thing I realized in the 80s is it would be better to put the Singh into my name because Sandra Lowe sounded ordinary and Sandra Singh Lowe sounded sort of Yoko Ono-ish. Something exciting was going to happen. It's going to be very avant-garde. So I sort of pictured that I would to be quite honest, that I would, you know, get fame as a performance artist. And somehow I had this idea, I go, didn't, doesn't Christo do stuff where he uh, just signs stuff and then people buy it? And I remember I was with a small record company at the time. They go, well, you need to figure out how to make money. I go, he made me sit down and write down like business plans. I go, I thought that you just became famous and then Christo, you would sign stuff or like, Remember this sound, I'm so embarrassed to say it, those black glamour ads, what becomes a legend most? Oh, black of course. Glamour. It's kind of like yeah. Eartha Kit would be in a mix. So you would do endorsements. Right. You do a gap ad and like a Christo type installation. Right. And then I think Doers was doing right. ads for a while. It was something like that. And actually, if you think of Fran Lebowitz's career, she actually got like she wrote two books. Oh, well, that's a, br- I think she has a benefactor. I think she's like has the, the Medici family is, uh, has been bankrolling her or something like that. Oh, it's something like that. That's honestly what I thought it would be. And there would be a coolness factor. And Laurie Anderson, I think going back to Laurie Anderson, um, you know, she's playing the violin with roller skates and ice in New York. And then she gets a big record contract with Warner Brothers and is suddenly selling out the Shrine Auditorium to do Oh Superman It just seemed at that time in the 80s that there was this coming together of coolness and culture and intelligence and huge amounts of money. Yes. Fashion spread in British Vogue. Well, and the art world taking off the art market. That was a huge part of that, right? Totally. Totally. So that's really what it felt like. And it was very Brett Easton Ellis and Tama Janowitz. I remember when I was writing short stories, it was like, we'll just be like Tama Janowitz. And we were almost counting the few amounts of pages of kind of like, okay, I have written four short stories. If I get to eight, that's about 142 pages. That's how long her book is. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's how it felt then. Right. It's the Tama Janowitz-o-meter. It's the barometer. Okay. I haven't thought about this in a long time. That was a period where the fine artist, not the pop artist, but the fine arts person was a commodity. And you could actually, you could blend those worlds. You could live in both of those worlds without feeling like a sellout necessarily. You were kind of just, you know, being embraced by institutions that happen to have money. Absolutely. And if you remember at that time, well, again, you're somewhat younger than me, and I've I've been in LA all of my life. So, and the LA Weekly, everything that we took for granted then, the LA Weekly was as almost as big as a telephone book full of futon ads or whatever. And they would, and Jonathan Gold was my first editor at the LA Weekly, and he was a music writer and an avant garde cellist. He was not writing about food at all. Wow. And he was a very high flutin, highbrow, lowbrow, you know, he's a classically trained cellist at UCLA and is signing me pieces on R&B artist named Sherelle, who I'd never heard. I mean, he was doing a highbrow, lowbrow, huge amount of ads in the LA Weekly. They had the highfalutin avant-gardist of the week and whatever. It was, it just all seemed very much one thing. Right. Did you ever 
question what you were allowed to write about? Did you ever worry about saying the wrong thing? What was your like degree of self-censorship? No. Oh, no. So no. And that, and, and I remember so Buzz magazine also came in, and this was like now we're going into the 90s. I remember reading you in Buzz. I loved that magazine. That was very exciting. Yeah, it was just right after Spy. It was sort of somewhat modeled on Spy, right. which is hard to believe that that would exist now in that form. Oh my gosh, just never. very irreverent, fast, fun, you know. And I, I remember writing a piece where I was noticing the LA Department of Cultural Affairs basically put out a, set, a thing that said, you know, if you're a white artist, don't bother applying because it's all people of color. And that, that, you know, at that particular time, and there was such a different time that I wrote a piece in Buzz called, Is This Ethnic Enough for You? Sort of <laughs> mocking it. And there's a picture of me in front of a Chinese lantern headpiece with a drag. I mean, it's so outrageous. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, the people were bending themselves into pretzel shapes. And I remember one poor orchestra said, and, and we're going to put on a piece by Mendelssohn, who is of the Jewish persuasion. Oh my gosh. I mean, people were trying to do that then. But you were able to like call it out and totally. make fun of it. And actually that made you more correct than them. Like that was the hierarchy of getting it. Right. In a major slick city magazine. And I also was doing pieces like, because I was trained as a pianist. So I would do these neoclassical pieces and then introduce them because no one understood what they were. And so I would say a monologue about what I was thinking when I wrote this piece. Then those became piano logs. And actually, my very first piece on This American Life, which is still archived there, it was called Escaping or something, is a piano log about dogs escaping from Canoga Park. <laughs> um, so I would do that. And I realized one time I was doing the short version of Oklahoma in four minutes, Roger and Hammerstein version, Stravinsky undertones. I'm playing to a room of gay men in West Hollywood in chaps with cowboy chaps with the butts cut out. And they go, I'm like a, a Victor Borga, a Chinese German straight Victor Borga on Acid Lady. I don't know where I am because at that time I couldn't even get into Asian American theater festivals, Asian American women's performance festivals because I wasn't doing the Amy Tan thing about mm. I'm Asian American, I'm dating a white boyfriend because I hate myself. And then at the end of my journey, I go to China, stand on my grandmother's grave. She comes to me in a dream in the form of a cricket. And then I realize I am more Chinese than I thought, which kind of, <laughs> I always joke that that's a Sandy Dykstra version of that. She had Maxine Honkingston and Amy Tan and we met for lunch night. And she Sandy goes, Dykstra is an age literary agent. Yes. Literary yeah. agent. Yes. Or Amy Tan and Maxine Honkingston and some others. And it was quite a successful, you know, kind of genre, the Asian American genre. I just couldn't write like that because my father was Chinese and my mother was German and I didn't have. And so I had many people give me the girlfriends, give me the Joy Luck Club crying and said, this is so moving. It's like my story. And they were all Jewish women. <laughs> so using Sing in your name, it wasn't an attempt to sort of be more ethnic. It was an attempt to be more artsy. It had nothing to do with like making yourself more marginalized. No, I was putting those things to it. No, it <laughs> right. was simply, it was an 80s thing. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was yeah. A, a kind of like, Yoko Ono, what's my brand? Laurie Anderson, right. Laurie Ting Anderson, Yoko, whatever. It was completely to appear more interesting and cool. Right. So at what point did you start to see things change in terms of the arts, in terms of what it meant to be an artist? I think about this a lot and I, I have like a couple of different time stamps, but I'm curious, like, 
know, it's so many years later, and obviously, you know, we're going to talk about the climate now, but maybe say, okay, we're talking about the 80s. What did like the mid 90s look like? Do you remember? So the mid 90s, and those were definitely the the high water days of Buzz magazine. So big cultural churn, at, you know, and then I think that Buzz kind of like got bought out by the end of the 90s. I think maybe the high water mark was like 94 in there. And then mm-hmm. by 1998, it is getting a little bit more corporate and like that. And, you know, I certainly remember in the 80s, there was Taxi Smart and Egg and all these magazines were exploding. Right. By the end of the 90s, it's becoming a little bit more corporate for me. So my journey is like my kid comes in 2000, where I'm in the second half of my 30s. And I've been writing for women's magazines also in the pink ghetto, going, this is more and more ridiculous. So I'm about 34 and going, now I'm writing the same piece over and over. I wrote for 17 boys who drive too fast. Or it's like, now I'm churning out content. So I'm going, the work thing is maybe not all it's trumped up to be. Maybe having a child would be interesting because I'm running out of ideas in the second half of my 30s. (laughs) So then I go into, uh, you know, once the young children come, you're just kind of like in a glaze for four or five years. So I don't really remember 2005 much. Okay. Culturally. So then, and then I wrote for The Atlantic for quite a while. And my editor was Ben Schwartz. Right. Then you became like a serious, you became like an intellectual writer. Yeah, sort sort of. I mean, it was more of a box that he put me into, but, but kind of looking at, feminism. And, and I think uh, what came up for me is like the capitalization of feminism, yeah. which I, capitalism, capitalization, capitalism, <laughs> of kind of like this idea that I became aware of that, you know, feminism and women's liberation in, let's say, 50s, 60s, Betty Friedan, that uh, women were supposed to now enter the workplace so that they were going to humanize the workplace and men were going to become more nurturing because they were going to spend more time at home. But more, it felt ramped up that now instead of working 40 hours a week, men work 50, women work 60, and now full-time working mothers spent more time with their kids than did average stay-at-home mothers. So for me, it felt like it was getting more, people were marching and getting a bit more corporate. And the terror of these gifted children, of our very gifted, fragile children, was a big thing. Supermothering was coming in the aughts of 2000. And so it was, it became, I don't know, things became less fun. Or list already early. It it just kind of oh my god. So I think the track that I was following was definitely the terror of the children that they're not going to get the right education and college is coming and it's expensive and they're not getting in, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're talking about? I think the timestamps. I'm wondering what you're, and then I think 2014 was somehow a big year. Yeah, and you know I was having this conversation with somebody recently, and they asked me like when you know you've been publishing stuff for i mean almost 30 years now really certainly 25 years and right. when did things feel different in terms of getting criticized say and right. i realized that it wasn't social media it was the rise of the comment section ah. um so like you know i was columnist los angeles times for a decade and yeah. i think there were always comments but I feel like there was a there was a moment I started it in like 2005 so I think there was like a couple of years after that or something the comments were just got like totally out of control and I felt like not just what I wrote anything you read there would be the article and then the comment section would be three times as long as the actual piece and like they right. would run the comment thread 
like next to the piece like it wasn't even like you had to click on something extra to get to it so like you could literally be reading the piece on one side of your screen and then the comments on the other side like they were just mixed (laughs) together so you were getting this this audience reaction in real time just this this idea of voice you know it used to be a lot that people and and i'm thinking back to the la weekly also of string columnists it was a persona and a voice. I remember like Michael Ventura, Letters at 3 a.m., whether I loved all what he was writing or not, or Joe Frank on KCRW, they were an entity. And you wouldn't really think about writing a letter of like, I think he's completely off base about the crows and Echo Park. Right. Like it's just sense of voice and these people that were there. And I also think of this is a little bit of a side note, but I began studying with T.C. Boyle at USC also in the 80s. And there was this idea that here's the teacher, he's the master. I wouldn't even get to use that word today. They've struck master. Well, this was back in the 80s. He could be gr- grandfathered in to master. He could be grandfathered in. No, he, he, he is the literary writer whom we, who was famed, justly famed, and who is legendary and who we admire. So if he does a reading, we all automatically go. Right. As opposed to nowadays, where if you teach a writing class, if your students are doing reading, you're expected to go to the students. That's right. Readings. That's right. <laughs> we would never dream of that. Of like he, like why should he come to my reading? I've only written these four stories that I'm trying to glue into a tabajamino. It's not like right. Like even if it's in a bar or something like that, you're you're yeah. expected <laughs> to go to their reading, right? If it's at their house, yes, and whatever. Yeah. So, but and I think so. That's one thing. I, I think the second thing is that I'm responding to of what you've said, yes. And now the comments, sometimes I'm reading the the errant person who doesn't care whether they're published or not is making more sense than the actual article did. And that's also strange. I mean, I think in terms of publishing, I think for me, I feel kind of lucky that the last couple books anyway, sort of came of a time where I, I just feel kind of the New York Times book review with Pamela Paul leading it. It's kind of like we are totally doing women authors are important, women books are important. So I I just felt in terms of that legacy coverage that it was, I remember my book Mother on Fire came out and Pamela Paul actually reviewed it. And I'm just feeling lucky that somebody got that, my sort of my PTA book, if you will. So in terms of the legacy part of it, that seemed fine. I guess I don't, because when I was writing for The Atlantic and when my marriage blew up, I wrote about it in The Atlantic, about the end of marriage. And this was, what, 2012, 13? Yes. I can't remember. Yes, let's see how it's like, it's 22, like, I think 2007. Okay, so earlier, earlier. Yeah, okay. So apparently the letters were so vicious and so horrible, but I didn't read them. So I'm a person, and I think it's partly because I've performed a lot in theater, and I've had, when you're doing theater and you're doing it eight shows a week and the major paper in town says that you suck, that you actually cannot actually read them. So right. as opposed to writers saying, I never read my reviews, you know, sometimes I do, but basically as I relate, don't. I don't either. I have not looked at the Amazon page for my books for the last three books. Seriously. Yeah, no, because I, I just was fooled into that like one too many times of, but maybe it'll be great. And then just, ugh. I just feel like it's a, it's a pain that I don't need to inject into my already semi-painful day <laughs> you know no I, uh, it's like it's just I, and I maybe it is avoidant but it's interesting because I sometimes wonder if I'm just sticking my head in the sand 
But I just feel like it's, I actually feel like it's mental health. It's good. It's a testament to semblance of mental health that I have that I, that I don't look at them. I agree. And now you're, you're, you're inspiring to go on a short rant that I hope I won't, you know, because basically I'm an optimistic person and I feel lucky and et cetera. But the, the, the artist, the idea of the artist used to be when I was starting or the writer in 79 or 83, it's kind of like, oh, somebody in New York has published my book. They will fly me out to New York. I will do a beautiful reading and I could just picture the wood paneling on the walls and the Chardonnay and the whatever. And it was kind of like, because I'm a book author and they're publishing my book. And then they would send you places and curate these beautiful audiences who just understood you very well and wanted to hear that, et cetera, et cetera. And to a certain extent in theater, because I worked with David Pitzer for a long time, great director, where he would say he would not allow you to read reviews and just always say how marvelous you were and who came the other night who thought how great you were and why what you're doing is great. So to a certain extent, I think that artists can use a, a smidgen of protection or not protection, just vision of a person or a team that there's this vision of what you're doing and you work hard at it and you have to rewrite it and you have to do your best, but somewhere either a great editor or a great producer or great someone is going to at least maintain you in this bubble. And sometimes bubbles are important. Whereas I think it's true that artists today, you know, if you're a book writer or whatever, you're expected to uh, tweet, have huge social media. And these are, and I know I'm not speaking for myself, very bookish writers who are introverts. That's why they write books. And suddenly yeah. it's kind of like yeah. start an Instagram account, tweet about baking a pie, right. make a video that goes viral, and now engage with all manner of people who are hating on you. It, it can be very um, bewildering. How do you feel about your work now? Like, what is your relationship to your work as opposed to 20 years ago? Do you love it? Do you protect it more or less? Are you less worried about it or more worried? You know, it feels very fractured right now. I, I think every time I have a book come out, I realize I, as much as, you know, I, I'm not one of those writers who gets up every day and writes and writes like, like uh, but I can get myself into the zone. And then I enjoy writing what I'm thinking about and what I'm feeling. So that part, as much as I might complain about being lazy or whatever they do, it's, I think the promoting of things, that's the thing that just seems like the whole other business or whatever. And sometimes I go, I could probably do it for other people. That has become such a big part of it, of the hawking and the selling and the making sure the tickets are going and books and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it just seems so different right now. And I think like, as you're suggesting, it's not what we can right now, it's what we can't. There's so many topics, especially as I, I'm going to say women of a certain age, which I am, which means white women, which means Karen. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's like there is a lot of stuff. But you're not even white. I'm not even white, but it doesn't matter. You put that sing in for a reason. Yeah, Don't squander it. Don't squander for- <laughs> the sing. But even to a certain extent, I have gay men my age who go, oh, yeah, we're not, we're over. You know, like gays, like we're basically Republican women. It's kind of like, you know. Oh, yeah, no, gay men are over for sure. You're writing about uh, middle class slash sort of ex-class, upper middle class in some people's minds, like middle-aged domestic life. I mean, 
for all your financial for all our financial problems, we are hashtag privileged in, right. in a very big way. And it's getting harder and harder uh, to write about those things. I mean, there's a huge literary tradition of writing about domestic life uh, and right. it either in a sort of somber, serious way or in a quirky, funny way. And I wonder if that tradition is about to be canceled <laughs> because it just automatically signals a sort of luxury. You've been going around and talking with a lot of women of a certain age and talking about this new book. Um, I'm yes. assuming you've been doing, instead of bookstore readings, there are there's the Zoom yep. bookstore reading. Yep. What kinds of issues are coming up with these women when you go around and talk about this book? Well, okay. So, and and I think the Zoom book tour is fine because as you say, you don't have to go somewhere. And then people, I found that in if women would throw a book house party, that would always be more fun. Yes. There would be more people there. There'd be a lot more wine and cheese, whether they've, a measure of them had to buy it, but they didn't all have to have read it. So oh, right. it's not like a book discussion. So it's just kind of a party of women hanging out. And I've certainly found that with this time of like... It's like your regular book club where nobody read the book, right? It's just right, the same exactly. thing. <laughs> yeah. So we've just kind of wine. done that with, yes. with women as well. And it's been totally fun. And sometimes it's kind of like there are 10 people and they haven't seen each other. They go, hey, Carol, how are you? And right. they're visiting. And that's kind of completely great because I'm sitting in my living room also. And, you know, so it's, it's really easy. I, I think that... You know, the issues that come up for women is, I, I guess, the, the multitasking of still taking care of so many different people, um, husbands, parents, kids. And I think the thing that it's not, it can't be spoken because it can, but they don't think it's a thing, is kind of holding the bag and being blamed. I think especially what comes up by their children, you know, of not using the right pronouns and not recycling properly et cetera, et cetera. And it's so common. I, I think it's not even thought to be a thing. It's not the problem that has no name or something of just kind of like, you know, after all oh, we've gone through, uh, you know, kind of with the, the, with the today sponge and the this, that, the other to <laughs> somehow. And I, I think, you know, it's kind of like the, not the Karen thing, kind of like, but they, they don't even say that it's like a problem. It's just in everybody's, it's just in these women's lives of being a certain age and if their household is not recycling or the farmer's market or they're not using the right pronouns of just, you know, not, not even being a demographic or deserving anything of particular measure, I think that's sort of what it feels like. Hmm. Does social media come up a lot? You know, I think for this cohort of women, they're not tweeters so much. They're Facebookers. They're big Facebookers. Big yeah. Facebookers. They're, and, and so my coterie of women, they tend to be... Subur let, if I can do a picture for you of the when I, I did a piece called The Bitch is Back at the Broad Stage. And it was very much a raucous girls' night out, Chardonnay flowing of I see people who are really can be more suburban women. I did this COVID safe curbside pickup out of my garage in the month of June and July. So instead of doing book signings, people would come to my driveway. And in a mask and glove, I would hand them a book. And that was really fun <laughs> to visit with people on that level. We had Barbells and James wine coolers in a cooler and Twix bars. And the people that visited me, and they would drive sometimes from an hour away, oh my gosh. were very much, I would say, like, your, your nice suburban woman who just needs a laugh and drinks some Chardonnay, and they're worried about their children. They're not necessarily hugely political. They're not the people. They're kind of invisible, I guess not the people that you generally see. 
unless there's a wall of Portland moms, wall of moms, right. you know, that's the most, you know, social media visible of that. There are a lot of people who aren't on it. Hmm, interesting. I guess I would say. Yeah. You are not on it a lot, it seems. What would you say your social media presence is? So I don't, because I have such, a, that's my, such little appetite for controversy. I just don't. <laughs> so it's like, so I'm not really on Twitter. I have a lot of people on Facebook that I connect with. And it's a very person to person, you know, it, it's kind of like a menchie. It's like, not like Lake Wobegon before Garrison Killer got me too'd out. It's it's just really an ecosystem of people with similar domestic problems. And I think as in the open of my book, when my tooth fell out, yes, the people will post about dentists a lot and there's pest control. So my world is definitely, I've used Facebook as my, you know, yellow pages directory for everything that goes wrong in your house. And people have given me really good tips. So that's why I'm kind of invisible because it's, I'm not of that world. What's the story in the book that people ask about the most or seem to remember the most? Oh, it's about my kid, uh, my, my younger child, who had a teen friend, uh, an internet friend, whom they had never met. Oh, yeah. She had never met. So, and that's kind of a new phenomenon now of, of just young people being having such virtual friends. And that my child had this friend and they were texting all the time. And it seemed like a gay boy. He was kind of suicidal and living in Florida, but incredibly loving and generous and sensitive and thoughtful. And my sister said, this is totally a catfish situation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do. And that that's, I think, parents, you know, my idea of being a parent is just to wait until they tell you, the kids tell you they, I won the swim meet. I got my test or whatever. And kids, the parenting thing, I, I really didn't necessarily set out to be a parent, ended up being one, is dealing with a lot of their friendships and their emotions and all that kind of stuff that's not so convenient for getting into college. And so and, and so this finally, my child and my daughter insisted that we go to Florida and visit this person. So something unseen we did. And wow. without knowing, is this a catfish or whatever? And I think part of that journey in this book of is like going I did the best I could understanding what life was like then, and I can't say it was a good decision or bad. And I think that's part of the journey of this kind of domestic life. Given that we've been talking about sort of the, the creative economy and the nature of audiences now, what kind of artist do you think you would be if you were starting out now? What if you were 20 now, as opposed to whenever that was? 1980, whatever. Oh, wow. Would you have just been a physicist? You did major in physics at Caltech. I so did. You, you don't want to bury the lead there. Let everybody know. So you, you could have had a whole other career. Oh, man. That's really hard to answer. And I think because when I grew up, you know, in, in the 60s into 70s, it just felt like, not like with the Steve Martin albums and the Richard Pryor yep. and the whatever, you're just growing up, that, that just seemed to, a very articulated thing of what humor and comedy and writing was an early Saturday Night Live. Sandra Bernhardt. Oh my gosh, she was mm -hmm. hugely influential to me. That was just the that way of carrying yourself. Yes. Yeah, it seemed like kind of more not like bohemian and funky and early and these individuals doing these various things. And if you did this one way, you would get written about in the Village Voice, the LA Weekly. This other way, it just felt more of 
what that world was. I mean, I think that I know with my children, my older daughter, who's 19 studying art, I think that on Instagram that they have, there is some creativity. Social media isn't all bad for kids and particularly for art. It's been huge visual art, Mm. incredibly rich and productive and thoughtful. In fact, I've done Inktober, which is when you draw a picture every day in in, in ink in October. And I've done that. So I, I think that it might be more in the art world. I think that if I were reading, I don't even know what I would be reading now, you know, between the alternative weeklies being gone. Um, there's a lot of more fan fiction and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very hard. So I think there's a lot of creativity in fantasy and art and stuff like that. But this sort of satiric articulated spy magazine stuff that we sort of grew up with and grew into to be that kind of writer, I don't think I would be that kind of writer now. Well, I'm glad you are the writer that you are. And um, I really appreciate your talking to me. Thank you uh, for being here. And congratulations on the book, The Mad Woman. Thank you. My pleasure. Is your Roomba, um, like, how often is it on? Unfortunately, it doesn't have the new filter. So it's just sitting collecting dust. It itself needs a Roomba. (laughs) That was my interview with author and performer Sandra Singh Lowe. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Down. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please consider supporting the podcast on its brand new Patreon page, where you'll find all kinds of goodies, including an extended version of this interview, wherein Sandra tells a hilarious and kind of horrifying story about a recent experience at a playwrights festival. You can find that at the second tier subscriber level at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Meanwhile, I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I am Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.